I'll be speaking on the topic of discernment, or discernment, as our beloved pastor says, in an age of identity politics. And as with any topical study, by no means is this intended to be a complete or comprehensive, let alone the only way to look at this topic. The points I've selected today are the ones that stood out to me from Scripture, but there could absolutely be other valid points out there. Now, with that said, I'm very excited to talk about this topic, and that's because discernment appears to be increasingly lacking in today's society, and even in the larger conservative evangelical landscape at times, it seems sometimes that discernment can be lacking. And meanwhile, all around us in our society, even in the church, we see the concept of identity politics just plain increasing everywhere, it seems. And so when we're surrounded by worldly concepts like identity politics, it's that much more important to use biblical discernment so that we can sift out the bad, and if there's anything left at all, to keep the good. So first, let's talk about discernment. We use that word quite a bit around here, so let's go ahead and define it. I appreciated uh, Pastor John's explanation the most. It may not surprise anyone, but his definition of discernment is... In its simplest definition, discernment is nothing more than the ability to decide between truth and error, right and wrong. Discernment is the process of making careful distinctions in our thinking about truth. In other words, the ability to think with discernment is synonymous with an ability to think biblically. 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 teaches that it is the responsibility of every Christian to be discerning. But examine everything carefully, hold fast to that which is good, and abstain from every form of evil. The Apostle John issues a similar warning when he says, Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world, 1 John 4, verse 1. According to the New Testament, discernment is not optional for the believer. It is required. And I totally, wholeheartedly agree with that. So that's discernment. What about identity politics? What's that? Again, I think it's important to define our terms, so let's do that here. The phrase has been around for about 50 years or so, and there have been different meanings associated with it over time. In today's context, however, I think this Oxford bibliography's description hits the mark. Identity politics, also commonly referred to as the politics of identity or identity-based politics, is a phrase that is widely used in the social sciences and humanities to describe the deployment of the category of identity as a tool to frame political claims, promote political ideologies, or stimulate and orientate social and political action, usually in a larger context of inequality or injustice, and with the aim of asserting group distinctiveness and belonging and gaining power and recognition. So when we're talking about discernment in an age of identity politics, we're talking about what a biblical worldview looks like in the midst of all of these identity groups competing for attention and support, often in the name of rectifying supposed injustice. And for these identity groups, the way to do that is usually by gaining power and recognition. 
So in a way, our topic this morning goes back to what Pastor John was talking about last fall, this notion of social justice. And for a fuller discussion of that, I recommend his incredible four-part sermon series on social justice in the gospel, starting on August 26 of 2018, where he just goes through a masterful exposition of Ezekiel 18. There was also a related blog series on the gty.org website. I've also taught on this topic before. There's a message from Sundays in July 2017 called Skin Deep. And there's also a panel discussion that uh, I had with Carl Hargrove and Mike Riccardi from Sundays in July 2018 called The Race Set Before Us. And just to give you a heads up, next week there will also be a social justice Q&A with Carl Hargrove. And it's not in the bulletin, but my dear friend Daryl Harrison will also be joining us. He is the uh, head of the Just Thinking podcast and blog And he actually moved out here in January to be the Dean of Social Media at Grace to You. And he's also a member at our beloved church. So that's next week. There will be that panel second hour on a social justice Q&A. But this morning, we're talking about identity politics. And the fundamental question in that regard for Christians is, what is our identity? Well, it's a great question. And happily, Scripture gives us the answer. And to tip my hand a little bit, it's an extremely simple one. That's right. As Christians, our identity is in Christ. Our identity is in Christ. It's our first and foremost and primary and increasing identity. Again, that's a very simple and straightforward claim, but as always, I don't want, to just, I don't want you to just take my word for it. I want to prove my point to you from the Scriptures, So let's read a number of verses together and talk about them. Turn to Romans 10, verses 12 and 13. We'll read this, and then we'll keep flipping forward through the New Testament with a number of additional verses. Romans chapter 10, verses 12 and 13. It'll also be displayed on your screen as you see. Romans 10, 12 and 13 states, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call on him. For whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. This passage is very clear. Jew or Greek does not matter. What matters is that Christ is our Lord, that we are unified in him, and that he is our Savior, and we call upon him, regardless of your ethnicity. But it's very clear that there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Flip forward to 1 Corinthians 12, 13. 1 Corinthians 12, 13 states, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. So once again, we see the concept of unity in Christ. We are all one spirit baptized into one body, no matter what our ethnicity might be. Jews and Greeks drink of the same Holy Spirit. The clear and obvious message from this verse is that ethnicity is simply not important compared to our unity in the Spirit. Let's move on to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 16 and 17. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17, and I would be remiss if I did not highlight to you that my dear friend Mike Riccardi has two uh, excellent sermons that cover this passage, 
and uh, you would be helped greatly by listening to both of them. Uh, one was from a couple few couple years ago, on, and he covered this in one context, and then he covered a broader passage at the Shepherds Conference talking about just the beauty of the gospel and the order of salvation. So I recommend those to you. 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and 17 Therefore, from now on, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him in this way no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed, the old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We are to regard no one according to the flesh. That is a command in scripture. And that means exactly what it sounds like it means. We must not allow superficial external factors such as ethnicity, beauty, clothing, social class, and many other external factors to affect how we view or treat others. Let's move on to Galatians chapter 3, verses 28 and 29. You're going to be hearing similar themes over and over again because, again, this is a repeated theme in Scripture, and it is so crystal clear. Galatians 3, verses 28 and 29. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. I want you to pause and think for a moment about how radical a statement this is coming from a Hebrew among Hebrews like Paul. Whether you're Jew or Greek, if you belong to Christ, you are Abraham's offspring. You are spiritual heirs to God's promises to Abraham. Now, for a Jew in that day and age, much, much less a Pharisee among Pharisees, a Hebrew among Hebrews like Paul was, for a Jew in that day and age to say that Greek Gentiles could be Abraham's offspring is simply unthinkable. And yet there it is in the perfect scripture. We are all one in Christ Jesus who tears down every ethnic barrier. Christians are one. They are united. Let's move on to Colossians 3, 9 through 11. Colossians 3, 9 through 11 states, Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him a renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, and freeman. But Christ is all and in all. So the start of this passage is, again, very similar to the Galatians passage. You you hear this theme over and over again. There is no more Greek or Jew. It's just not important anymore. There's no more circumcised or uncircumcised, or in other words, no more viewing as clean or unclean. There's no more barbarian or Scythian, or in other words, uncivilized brutes and outsiders. There's no viewing as as that type of stereotype. For those in Christ, there is only Christ who is all and in all. We see from the perfect scripture where our emphasis should be. It should be on Christ, on our unity as Christians, and not on ethnicity. Let's move forward to 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10. 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 states, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you 
out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You know, it's so interesting. When you look at the Greek terms for race and priesthood and nation, those are all singular Greek terms. So it's not a dozen races or a dozen priesthoods or a dozen nations here. We're talking about one race, one Christian race. It doesn't matter what we look like. We are one people, one race, and we're bound together with the foundation of Jesus Christ as our chief cornerstone by which everything else is measured. And as we look at all of these verses, this theme, again, could not be more clear. We are unified in Christ right now. In the present, we are one race, and all other temporal distinctions, all other recognitions of the flesh, those are all unimportant distinctions. So unimportant, in fact, that when compared to Christ, they're not really even distinctions at all. This theme that I'm talking about here is further amplified by John 3, verse 30, which aptly states, he must increase, but I must decrease. Every other group identity pales in comparison to our Christian identity. And our unity in Christ is a reality and a command that must overwhelm any other tendency toward tribalism or factionalism. Think about it. Luke told us plainly in Luke 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Our Christian calling could require us to leave behind even immediate family. You saw that with so many of the disciples where they they even left their profession, their nets. They left their families in some cases for the sake of following Christ. So how much more so must we leave that? behind the ties of far less importance, such as ethnicity or class or tribe or political party even. And the reason for this is because Christ is Lord over all. Hebrews 2.8 states, You have put all things in subjection under his feet, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. All things are in subjection to Christ, and that includes our very own identities and selves. Really, as we talk about all these verses, again, my desire has been to give you just a a surfeit, a large quantity of, of verses to show you how clear this is from Scripture. But I really think the trump card verse when it comes to this issue is Philippians 3, verses 7 and 8. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ. This is one of the most powerful and helpful verses on this topic of identity. And the reason is, just a few verses early in Philippians, Paul talks about the pride that he had taken previously in his Hebrew among Hebrews ethnic identity. How important and central that fleshly identity was to him prior to Jesus Christ. But now, even that identity, which had been so central and important to Paul previously, is counted as loss. It is counted as rubbish 
In some translations, we see the word dung or manure, and the Greek conveys a meaning of good for nothing except to be discarded. How about that? I mean, I know some Christians who are extremely invested in their own ethnic ethnicity, ethnic identity, so much so that it almost begs the question of whether they might potentially be making it out to be an idol in their lives. We just heard in first service from Steve Lawson in a tremendous sermon about the topic of idols and the danger of idols. But how are you supposed to make an idol out of rubbish or dung or manure? I mean, I hope you'll forgive this imagery, but it's biblical imagery. According to this verse, making an idol out of your own ethnicity would be like taking a pile of dung and putting it up on a pedestal and bowing down to it. It would make no sense. So with all of these verses, the weight of Scripture, I believe we've now covered very clearly that our identity is in Christ and Christ alone and that we're to be unified and united in Christ, and that every other part of our identity must pale in comparison. Simple, right? Well, I'd like to think that it really ought to be that simple. But in light of the controversy we've seen, even in the conservative Reformed Christian community here in the United States regarding this topic, there are obviously some people who would take issue with my overall thesis. So let's try to fairly consider and address their point of view on this. What are some common objections to what I've just put before you? Well, for Christians who insist other identities outside of Christ remain at least somewhat important, one common objection you might hear is that, to use one example of an identity group, ethnic groups, for example, they must be important because the gospel is to go out to the uttermost ends of the earth to people of all ethnicities, and people will still even retain their ethnicity in heaven. Well, My response to that is simple. We certainly agree that the gospel is to go out to the uttermost ends of the earth, to people of all ethnicities. And by the way, our whole church agrees with that. Because as our pastors and elders have said on so many occasions, at Grace Community Church, you cut us and we bleed missions. Missions are our very lifeblood here. But again, the basic fact that ethnic groups do indeed exist today, and they do, and that we want them all to have the gospel, and we do, that does nothing to overturn the basic fact from the word of God that we are all united in Christ as we just went over at length, verse after verse after verse. In fact, it's precisely because we're united in Christ that we want to bring the gospel to our brothers and sisters across the world without any discrimination or partiality whatsoever. Remember, we regard no one according to the flesh, right? If we did, if we only cared about people who looked like us, as some accuse us even, what would we be doing? Well, we certainly wouldn't be prioritizing worldwide missions like we do. We certainly wouldn't have so many different languages, language outreaches outreaches on this very campus, Spanish ministry, Arabic, Filipino, Italian, Korean, Russian, Thai outreach, You name it practically, and we've got an outreach. And if you speak another language fluently and you want to bring the gospel in that language, come talk to me afterwards, and I'll be glad to connect you with our local outreach department. That would be a joy. There's so many times where just these ministries are are grassroots ministries. They, They come up because people have a passion and desire to reach people that speak a different language, or and and that's a tremendous thing. 
But I do want to, with that said, spend a bit more time on this ethnic groups in heaven concept because it's such a common objection. The argument typically goes something like this. We need to celebrate and emphasize and focus on even the importance of ethnic diversity here on earth because God is a creative God and the body of Christ has many parts. And when you look at a picture of heaven in Revelation 7, 9, you see people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. So obviously, if ethnicity persists even in heaven, it must be important. So why aren't we acknowledging how important it is here on earth too? Well, I've heard that argument numerous times, and there are several problems with that interpretation, in my view. First, yes, God is indeed a creative God. But it goes beyond what Scripture says to assume that simply because God is creative and created different ethnicities, that that somehow means we ought to focus on ethnicity any more than we ought to focus on the color of our eyes or hair, which God also created in his great creativity. Again, as we've seen clearly, Scripture does have plenty to say about how we ought to think about things like ethnicity and physical appearance. And again, the Bible does not seek to elevate or emphasize their importance. Second, when you see the term body of Christ in Scripture, it generally means the entire group of believers everywhere. And when we talk about the diversity of the body of Christ, or the body of Christ having many parts, if you take a look at the key passages on that concept, such as 1 Corinthians 12.12 and following, and Romans 12.4 and following, and Ephesians 4.11 and following, you will see that the focus is on different function and giftedness. That's what the reference is to many parts and not on ethnicity or physical appearance. That's not the focus. Third, yes, ethnicity does indeed persist even in heaven because it does exist here and our glorified bodies are still going to be like us in many ways, except far better and without any sin. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. But let's take a close look at Revelation 7 verses 9 and 10. Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10 states, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. This passage and the other ones like it in Revelation, there are a few other passages like this in Revelation, these are all descriptive passages. They simply state matter-of-factly that heaven will have people from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And that description does not therefore equal an ethnocentric mandate any more than descriptions of polygamy in the Old Testament equal an approval of multiple wives. Indeed, when we look at Revelation 7, verses 9 and 10, we see that the focus on that passage is actually upon worship of the Lamb. That's the focus of the passage, and not at all on the ethnic makeup of the worshipers. That is not the focus of the passage. In fact, upon closer examination, the most noteworthy aspect of the worshipers is that they're all so astonishingly unified, even uniform in many ways, one could say. They're all standing in the same position before the throne. They're all wearing the same white robes. They're all waving the same palm branches. 
They're all saying the exact same thing. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. These descriptive passages in Revelation are hardly a justification for elevating the importance of ethnicity. In fact, they speak far more to the elevation of our unity in Christ. Indeed, the fact that the worshipers are of different ethnicities is really more like a matter-of-fact side comment almost. And it's nowhere near enough scriptural support for an entire philosophy of ministry, much less theological framework to be constructed around it, especially in light of the many, many, many clear commands in scripture that we've seen previously that I went through with you on our identity in Christ. Now, in working out this tension in our lives between the current world we live in and heaven above, it's important to consider the command in Colossians 3, verse 2. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Pastor John preached from this passage just a few weeks ago. Our goal should be to consider the importance of people's eternal state, far more so than their temporal worldly state. That is one reason we are so committed to missions at this church. And indeed, we need only look at the example of our Savior for confirmation. The Lord worked miracles and helped people everywhere, but he did not abolish poverty in Israel. Far from it. Instead, he acknowledged that the poor would always be with us in Mark 14, 7. He emphasized the importance of the good news for the poor, specifically in Matthew eleven five 5 and Luke seven twenty two, which prioritizes the spiritual over the worldly when it comes even to the poor. He never sought to overthrow the oppressive Romans. Instead, he commanded people to pay taxes to them in Matthew twenty two twenty one. And finally, in John six thirty four, he declined the request of the crowd to always give them bread. So that's one common objection to this concept of, look, our identity is in Christ and Christ alone. Some people try to elevate identity politics, identity groups, ethnicity as one identity group by using these revelation verses. We now move to a related objection, which is that some Christian social justicians might then argue, hey, wait a minute, ethnicity is important. Just look at the focus on ethnic discrimination that we saw in Acts 6 and Galatians 2. Aha! This proves that we need to emphasize ethnicity. Well, no, actually, it doesn't. And when you take a close look at Acts 6 and Galatians 2, we'll see it actually shows the exact opposite thing. It does not support the social justicians argument at all. Because in Acts 6, we saw a conflict in Jerusalem where the native ethnic majority Hebraic Jews were neglecting the distribution of charity to the widows of the ethnic minority Hellenistic Jews. Meanwhile, in Galatians 2, we saw conflict in Galatia, which is near what we now know as central Turkey, where the ethnic minority Jews were arrogantly keeping themselves separate from the native ethnic majority Gentiles, many of whom were actually from a Celtic, Celtic background. So what we see in both of these conflicts we see the clear call to crush down the importance of our ethnic identity and to elevate our unity in Christ, which is what truly matters. This reality is true regardless of whether it's a majority group or a minority group acting wrongly. You see, the minority Jews in Galatians 2 did not get a pass 
just because they had been historically oppressed by the Romans and Gentiles. So when you occasionally see aggressive calls by certain people that are in minority groups to separate themselves by ethnicity, even into their own ethnic churches, you're seeing occasional calls like that in evangelicalism today. When you see those calls, it's the same thing we saw Peter do in Galatians 2. And it's just as unbiblical and sinful and wrong. And to be crystal clear, because I don't want you to make any mistake, it was also unbiblical and sinful and wrong when majority groups engaged in segregation and that type of discrimination in centuries and decades past as well. But as we look at the reality today, we don't really see that kind of overt majority group segregation happening so much anymore in the U.S. because it's illegal to discriminate like that now. But if you do see that happening, please let me know because I'd be eager to confront that boldly. But the answer remains the same, and regardless of whether you're a majority or a minority group, you're held to the exact same scriptural standards. So cut it out and repent. And by the way, as an aside, nowhere in either Acts 6 or Galatians 2 is there any evidence of reparations being made after the fact. The solutions were simply to be diligent in ensuring a fair distribution of charity and to sit together in unity. Now, if you're interested in learning more about the unbiblical nature of the reparations discussion happening in our larger society today, I can recommend an excellent podcast from just a few months ago, Daryl Harrison's Just Thinking podcast from March 20th, 2019. I mentioned it earlier, Daryl's a dear friend and one of the smartest and most biblical men that I know. He's a member of our church, and you can meet him next week on the social justice panel with Carl Hargrove and me. Let's do one more common objection. Some Christian social justicians insist other identities outside of Christ remain at least somewhat important because we're commanded to love our neighbor. And so one way we can do that is by righting their wrongs, particularly for oppressed identity groups. This is another common objection, and it's an appealing one because it's true. Jesus in Mark 12.31 says clearly, the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. We are indeed commanded to love our neighbor, and we must do exactly that. If you want a really good longer series on this topic of loving our neighbor, my dear friend and co-pastor Harry Walls in the Cornerstone Fellowship Group uh, prior to going through James He did this incredible extended series on loving your neighbor and living to love and how to do that. I recommend it highly. But it's one thing to say that you need to love your neighbor, which is true. And it's another thing entirely to say that you need to love your neighbor in this extremely specific way that I tell you to. You see, like many of the general commands relating to love, the command itself is broad and lends itself to Christian liberty and individual stewardship and calling. In other words, there are no specific time, place, and manner directions in Scripture on how exactly, how precisely to love our neighbor. So when someone tells you that if you're not supporting, say, the Black Lives Matter organization or the Democrats or this or that identity politics cause, you're somehow not loving your neighbor, I think an appropriate response would be, where specifically do you see that in Scripture? Because if they can't point to anything, a more appropriate verse to quote back to them might be Matthew 23, verse 4. They tie up heavy burdens and lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are unwilling to move them with so much as a finger. This is the classic 
danger of legalism, when other people try to bind your conscience with their own convictions. Just because another person has adopted a certain priority or cause in their own Christian liberty and stewardship, that does not mean that you are bound to do the same any more than you're bound to spend the money that God has given you stewardship over the way that some outside third party thinks that you should. Now, when it comes to loving our neighbors, my own desire will always be to do so proactively and lavishly even in the manner that God calls me to in the scriptures. And according to the Bible, I have some very specific neighbors that I owe a particularly high duty toward, those people for whom I am most responsible and the people that I've commanded to love and honor. Scripturally, that's my wife, per Ephesians 5.25. It's my parents who are deceased, but it's a person's parents, pursuant to Ephesians 6, verse 2. It's my immediate family and household, pursuant to 1 Timothy 5, verse 8. It's my fellow Christian brothers and sisters, even more so than non-believers, per Galatians 6.10. We'll get to that more in a bit. It's the specific believers in my own local body, pursuant to Acts 20.28 and 1 Peter 5.2. It's my elders and leaders, per 1 Thessalonians 5.12 and 1 Timothy 5.17. It's the people who cross my path, per Luke 10, verses 30 through 37. It's the people who actually ask me for help, per Luke 6.30. And it's even the king or emperor or leader of the country who are commanded to honor, pursuant to 1 Peter 2.17. And that's how I would answer this third common objection. Well, now that we've established that our identity is indeed in Christ, and that's what really matters, and now that we've talked about some of the common objections from people who might disagree with that main identity emphasis to varying degrees, we come to our third and final point today. How do we navigate identity politics? On some level, this question implicates the topic of political engagement or activism generally, and for that, I again refer you to the Skin Deep message I gave for Sundays in July 2017. I talk a lot about that in the second half of that message. I also gave a message in Sundays in July 2016 entitled Christians and Politics. So those messages can give you what I hope will be some good concepts and principles in terms of whether or not to get involved and how and how not to get involved. But specifically as it pertains to identity politics, in the event you decide in your own Christian liberty and stewardship to engage or even be active in political matters, I think there is a helpful scriptural principle to remember, and it's related to our identity and unity in Christ, which I've already emphasized so strongly today. And that scriptural principle is found in Galatians 6.10, as I briefly referenced a few moments ago. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So if we cherish our unity in Christ, if that's the most important identity that we have, We need to remember that we are indeed called to love our neighbor as ourselves, and we are indeed called to do good to all people. Those are both very true, but we're commanded in Galatians 6.10 to especially do good to those who are of the household of faith, to other Christians. And of course, this makes sense, and it's perfectly in keeping with John 13 verses 34 and 35. 
A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, I would say that it's actually a common misconception among Christians that we ought to treat unbelievers better than we treat our brothers and sisters for the sake of evangelism, for the sake of our Christian witness. But I would say that based on my understanding of Scripture, that is precisely wrong. We are indeed to love unbelievers, yes, but the love we show our fellow Christians should be so lavish that it stands out as a testimony to those same unbelievers, so much so that they should yearn to be part of our Christian community. We see this same lesson in 1 Corinthians 10, 27, and 28. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Speaking of this passage, Pastor John says this, you're better off to offend the non-Christian. You have a far greater obligation to your brother. This is the family, folks. This is the kingdom. Far better to offend that unbeliever. And you know what that unbeliever will conclude? Those Christians love each other. Those Christians care for each other. If you offend your brother and you don't offend the unbeliever, the unbeliever will conclude that it is better to be an unbeliever. They treat you better. Don't offend a believer. So back off of that desire to reach out to that unbeliever for the sake of love to that brother and to make sure he doesn't stumble. Why? Because God, listen to this, is far more concerned about his own than those who aren't his own. They are his beloved sheep, and the reaching of those who aren't his own is dependent upon the virtue and the godliness and the character of those who are. So if you decide in your own Christian liberty that you're going to be getting involved with identity politics in some way, I would urge you to be aware of our most important identity in Christ and to look out for your fellow brothers and sisters, even politically, for example. Maybe you want to show love toward your fellow Christians so that they won't lose their livelihoods or even go to jail if they don't bend the knee knee to the latest popular secular opinion put forward by some leftist identity group. Or maybe you want to stand up for biblical morals and values because you want to honor God and demonstrate true biblical love to your neighbors because, after all, love rejoices in the truth. It doesn't conceal the truth behind a fake and cowardly veneer of milk toast niceness. Or maybe you want to work to preserve religious liberty and freedom of speech and freedom of expression so that Christians can continue to assemble freely and worship and, most of all, proclaim the gospel to all people, which is truly their greatest need. And if we love people, we're going to recognize that unbelievers' greatest need is the gospel. Those could be very appropriate hard attitudes and motives. Now, on the flip side, we need to be careful to examine our heart attitudes and motives and ensure that we're mortifying any unworthy ones. Because if all we're about is owning the libs or spiking the football in the end zone in their faces, that's probably not the most honorable motive. If we're looking to dominate or control or take over the world for Christianity, that might be right in line with a post-millennial theonomist's worldview, but maybe not for pre-millennials like us 
who know that Christianity is the narrow way and few find it. And so we're always going to be outnumbered by a hostile world. And that we understand that we're called to be servants of all, centering our minds on the things above and not on temporal power. And that every time throughout history that human beings have been in charge, even professing Christian human beings, we inevitably mess it up. And it's only the return of Jesus Christ that will make all things right. We know that as confident pre-millennialists. Now, as you talk about getting engaged or think about getting engaged politically beyond our identity in Christ, I think you need to be more careful. I don't think that there's necessarily anything sinful or fundamentally wrong with using your Christian liberty to align with certain other identity groups, potentially, but you need to examine whether both the means and the end are in line with biblical principles. After all, Christians can't just go lie, cheat, and seal their way to millions and seek to justify that by donating half of their ill-gotten gains to the church. So maybe it'd be okay for me as a lawyer to line up with a lawyer's group that seeks to protect the legal profession. But if they do that by suing everyone in sight and being pugnacious and quarrelsome, I might be very hesitant to endorse those means. And if one of their main goals was to promote an anti-Christian, secular, atheist agenda, I would definitely be uncomfortable endorsing that end. Let's take another example. In my personal opinion, I think the fight for the lives of the unborn is the most important fight politically that we have today in this country as a matter of justice, actually, because it is literally a matter of life and death. Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9 states, Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all the unfortunate. Open your mouth, judge righteously, and defend the rights of the afflicted and needy. Who is more mute than an unborn baby? Who is more unfortunate than an unwanted child? Who is more afflicted, needy, and helpless than a precious one still naked in the womb that not only has no possessions, but in this country, sadly, has very few, if any, rights even? But even on that critically important fight on abortion, you still need to consider the means and the end. A group's end goal of halting abortion might be righteous, but perhaps the means that they seek to use include civil disobedience or even violence, which would be sinful and unacceptable for any Christian. You know, I want to, um, that Proverbs 31, 8 and 9 verse, this verse is also often used by many social justicians to try to claim that there is some obligation to speak out publicly against certain things. And I would point out that we, this context is opening our mouth for the mute is, again, this doesn't require you to, you to virtue signal on your social media. What this requires is if you see a situation of injustice where there are the unfortunate, where there are the needy and afflicted, that you should speak out in that situation. And I would also add When we talk about the mute here in an age of social media where anyone in a Western country has access to quite a bit of voice, you know, I wonder who is truly mute aside from the unborn. When we talk about a country in the Western world in the United States that is wealthy beyond imagination compared to the ancient Near East where starvation was rampant, again, I wonder who is truly destitute even. So these are questions to think about even in Proverbs 31, 8, and 9 as a brief digression. But, of course, there is the reality that in today's political environment, as we talk about what we do with respect to identity politics, I would say the significant majority of identity groups and identity politics in general are based on overtly leftist and secular ideals. 
If we go back to our definition of identity politics, you can't really support an identity group's quest for power in order to rectify injustice when the group itself stands against biblical morals and ethnics and defines injustice in a way that's very different from or even opposed to the Bible. Now, you might notice that the types of things that I'm mentioning tend to line up with what I would call a typical conservative evangelical political outlook. Biblical values, religious freedom, abortion. And it seems like it's become very stylish these days to condemn that sort of thing, especially for the Southern Baptists, whose powerful Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission is being run by a former staffer for a Democrat congressman. But I'll tell you, speaking of someone who used to be a radical leftist myself before God saved me, but who is not a registered Republican today, I am not personally a party man or, or anything like that, a political party man. Now, I'm not criticizing you if you are. It's just not who I am. So for me, it's all about the issues. And if the Democrats start fielding candidates that are strong for biblical values and religious freedom and halting their murder of the unborn, I promise that I would give that candidate a serious look. Now, I'm not exactly holding my breath. (laughs) But until that happens, speaking for myself personally, I'm usually kind of stuck with at most one option that my own conscience, and I'm not presuming to speak for yours, but my own conscience would allow me to support And that one option has not been the Democrats in any recent election. Now, with that said, there is a tendency, I think, that we all have to put far too much confidence and trust in politics, when the reality is that only our God is sovereign. You don't have to turn on Fox News or CNN or whatever to get all riled up by the latest outrage of the day. Instead, we can trust that our God is sovereign, Each mere vote that we cast is rarely ever going to make the difference, especially here in liberal California, right? But as it says in 2 Corinthians Corinthians 10, verses 3 and 4, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. And Psalm 20, verse 7 is another good reminder. Some boast in chariots, and summon horses, but we will boast in the name of the Lord, our God. You see, that is indeed a danger of putting too much confidence and trust in politics, is that we get so wrapped up in it, and we start to, we start to forget that God is sovereign. But there's also a danger in putting too much confidence and trust, too much emphasis and focus upon any group identity outside of Christ. And historically, we've seen some absolutely horrific results from these types of identity politics. For example, we've seen genocide occur. Obviously, we all know about the Nazi genocide of the Jewish people in World War II, but we also recently acknowledged the 104th anniversary of the Armenian genocide, where Islamic Turks murdered one and a half million Christian Armenians. There's the awful sin of ethnicity-based chattel slavery originating from man-stealing, which is exactly what American slavery was. That was a horrific identity group-based sin. There's the dehumanizing impact of segregation, which treated brothers and sisters made in the image of God, the Imago Dei, as lesser beings, which is an insult to the Imago Dei and an insult to God. 
And there are, of course, other wrongs and injustices that persist even today, perhaps none to the magnitude of the other atrocities I've described, but even if they're different in degree, they can often be similar in kind. As we conclude our message before we get into a time of Q&A, we'll give the closing word on these types of identity politics to Dr. Albert Moeller from his briefing podcast on June 14th, 2019. The main consequence of critical race theory and intersectionality is identity politics. And identity politics can only rightly be described as antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have to see identity politics as disastrous for the culture and nothing less than devastating for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time, just even as we get to delve into a little bit the notion of discernment in an age of identity politics. And as we process through this, I pray that the people would be just encouraged, convicted if necessary, even by how clear your word is, how many verses there are, how, many, how similar they are, how, how the themes are so consistent in scripture with respect to where our true identity ought to be. In Jesus Christ, our perfect Savior, who God, true God, came down to earth from heaven in the form of a man to live a perfect and sinless life. And yet sinful men persecuted him and oppressed him and even crucified him on the cross. And while on that cross, he took upon himself all of the sins of those who would believe in him, past, present, and future, And then he was buried, and then he was raised on the third day, showing his victory over sin and death. It is that Christ who we worship. It is that Christ who we magnify. It is that Christ who we glorify. Lord, that is our identity in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for everyone here that Jesus might increase while we might decrease. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do right now is we're going to have a time of Q&A. Sometimes I do these live, but I actually this time, uh, I sometimes, for a more sensitive topic potentially, I love to do this through text messages to a friend of mine who can kind of review them and, and uh, ask some of the questions that might have similar themes or more common themes. I am going to be saying that, again, just in the interest of encouraging a full and uh, open discussion, uh, I'm not going to be, we're not going to be revealing names today. Uh, So uh, feel free to start texting those questions if you have them. Please try to be relatively concise, as Aaron will be up here furiously scrolling through his text messages. Please make it an actual question that will increase the chances of your question being asked. I want to note that we appreciate more general questions that might help a broader group. And if you have a very specific question, please feel free to come up and see me afterwards. I'll be here for a while. So with that said... Uh, maybe, Aaron, if you have uh, you know, an initial question to ask or anything, uh, please feel free. Yeah. Um, so working with unbelievers, uh, you know, everyone in the office talking about supporting a certain group or helping a certain group. Uh, how can I as a Christian come off as loving, giving, supportive? Uh, but maybe if I don't actually agree with that group or don't want to support the group directly, how do I interact with that situation? Yeah, and I think that's a challenge in the workplace for many people today, right? Especially here in liberal California. There is a certain mindset that is very common, and it is a mindset that I would like to say most of the time is not very biblical. And so 
This is really where I think you need to be winsome. Uh, There is an important concept in Scripture which talks about the importance of discretion. And I actually go into this at length uh, in my message from last week on the topic of the fool. Uh, One of the three characteristics of a fool is that the fool has an untamed tongue. And really, there's so much benefit in Scripture. Chris Hamilton from last year's Sundays in July had a message on social media. Uh, He went over the importance of silence and how that can be very helpful. So I would say that uh, scripturally, studying those verses on when to speak and more importantly, when not to speak, could be very, very helpful to you. So I want to give you those additional resources. I would say that, um, you know, personally, when you're ministering to people, when you're loving your neighbor, when you're caring for them, I think doing that on as individual a level as possible, where you can care for someone and even care for their concerns, griefs, problems, and try to help in some tangible way, that would all be things that I would recommend. But, you know, you have to gauge, you know, is it worth it to kind of engage the broader biblical issue here? But that's what I would really emphasize to you is that if you do choose to engage in a discussion that relates to your biblical convictions, that you have the Bible ready to, to, to go, you know, that you would always be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in you but that you do it also with uh, uh, gentleness and patience and grace seasoned with salt. Um, But yeah, if you're just spouting political talking points and uh, not getting into the Bible, then I think uh, you're really going to run the risk of uh, maybe a missed opportunity there with your colleagues because, look, you're going to be pigeonholed as a Christian no matter what, but you're going to be pigeonholed doubly if you just give political talking points. I think if you consistently go to the Bible and, and try to share, look, you know, the Bible says this. Now, I am a Christian, and I believe the Bible, and so really your quarrel is not with me expressing this viewpoint to you. Your quarrel is with the Holy Scriptures right here, and if you want to, you know, disagree with me on that regard, that's fine, but, you know, it's nothing personal. This is, this is what the Word of God says. So that's what I would recommend, again, to the extent you decide to interact at all. I've personally found that it can be an unhelpful rabbit trail to get into large-scale political discussions at, in the workplace, especially given the context we're in. And instead, my desire would be to try to care for people individually, and uh, especially if there's a way that you can come alongside someone and help someone uh, tangibly, and you can love your neighbor in that way. Should Catholics and Christians work together in moral issues uh, such as abortion? Yeah, you know, this is a classic kind of uh, question that has come up. And I think that, um, you know, my understanding is that uh, we, we, have a, we have a ministry that goes out to the abortion mills here at Grace Community Church. And if you're interested in that, come up and see me afterwards and I can connect you with the right person. I think it's Wednesdays and Saturdays, if I recall correctly, that people go out and they preach the gospel at these abortion mills. And uh, oftentimes there are Catholics there. And, you know, I would say even Catholics are, uh, you know, very good at uh, this type of um, abortion ministry. And I think that's a commendable thing. But my understanding is that we don't make common cause with those Catholics on site and we actually share the gospel and proclaim the gospel to all, uh, even including to the Catholics who sometimes are very often trapped in a, a kind of works-based uh, slavery, if you will, and they need to understand that it's by Jesus Christ alone, in faith in Christ alone, is the way to salvation. It's not all of these other man-made works. And so on that level, um, I think that's been our take here. Now, that's not to say 
I mean, again, I think there are potentially more limited circumstances where, uh, you know, outside of gospel spiritual ministry where you might be able to join up on some political cause. I think people could do that and, and have done that in the past. Um, but uh, really, I think this is a matter that's subject to some amount of uh, wisdom and liberty. And, uh, you know, I think that I would be hesitant to brand it one way or the other. Uh, again, I think the distinction in this case with respect to the ministry that we have here is that this is a gospel ministry. And in spiritual endeavors, we know from 1 Corinthians that we are not to be yoked together in spiritual endeavors with uh, unbelievers. And that sadly would describe, I would say, the great majority of Catholics uh, who don't hold to faith in Christ alone. Uh, just to let everyone know, I'm, I'm coming up on almost 30 questions. So I'm trying to group some together uh, based on topics and stuff like that. So um, this is from someone that you obviously know, Han. But Han, you are very active on Facebook and comment extensively. Uh, I tend to avoid social media debates because usually they seem very unprofitable. But how do you conclude when one is a good use of your time? Yeah, that's a great question. And, uh, you know, I promise you I cannot pretend to have it all figured out. Um, I do really make a heart check that whenever say, I say anything on social media, blog, whatever, that uh, I really need to pray it up. Uh, I need to pray that make sure my own heart is right. I always do my very best to remember that on the other side of the screen is another human being. Oftentimes it's, an, it's another beloved brother or sister in Christ and that uh, I really want to be caring for that individual. Um, I think that when I do decide to speak, it's where I believe that there is a, um, uh, a helpful word I might be able to bring from the scriptures. I, I try to avoid, and, and I, I fail undoubtedly many times, but I try to avoid merely expressing my opinion. Uh, that, that would be a hallmark of a fool, actually, is one who goes around expressing their opinions and their sleeves so often. Um, but, uh, you know, my desire is to point to a biblical understanding of various issues I will say that I'm not always um, thinking that I'm going to convince the person that I'm interacting with, but uh, what I hopefully will be doing is I might be convincing people who are reading the exchange, or I might be bolstering and encouraging other believers who think similarly but are silent or have been cowed into silence even in certain cases because I think as we see this proliferation of identity politics in particular, there can be this kind of like public shaming aspect. Of how dare you think that way or how dare you believe that way? Uh, you know, and I think on that level... Um, there may be some call for uh, being willing to stand up. Again, as long as you can be rooted in the scriptures. And I think that's such an important thing to do. Uh, but again, I do need to remember 2 Timothy 2.24, uh, which is, I'm going to cite that right now. I don't want to butcher it, so I'm going to call it up. 2 Timothy 2.24 is so important when engaging in social media. The Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So I cannot pretend to do social media well, and I, in fact, encourage all of you that if you ever see me engaging in social media not well, I would urge you and eagerly implore you to approach me about that and uh, feel free to uh, correct me. So that's an open invitation, dangerous though that may be. 
Uh, I've had several questions about this, so I'm going to more or less generalize it. Uh, how should a Christian view the illegal immigration talks that are going on, deportation, locking yeah. up of people at the border? Um, how should we work through that? So I think this is a challenging issue because I think there are various principles in Scripture that we need to remember as we process through this issue. And I think, first of all, conceptually, if you look at Paul in uh, the book of Acts, you see that Paul understands and enjoys the benefits of and even appeals to his Roman citizenship in that. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, well, it would be unjust for me to appeal to my Roman citizenship because that would be unfair. I've got so much Roman privilege. You know, he, he doesn't say that. He actually says, I'm going to use my privilege of citizenship and I'm going to appeal to Caesar. And so he doesn't make any apologies for his Roman citizenship. He uses his citizenship for the gospel, Right. So he, he's, he's doing that. And so what I'm trying to say is that the concept of citizenship itself is not unbiblical. And so if you are a citizen of the, Ameri- of the United States, praise the Lord. That, that's a benefit and a blessing. It's a privilege. Uh, to those who much is given, much is expected. We knew that from Luke 12:48, the second half of Luke 12:48. So uh, there is, uh, a, you know, as you enjoy that blessing of citizenship, you need to remember that you need to exercise it and uh, that uh, you're accountable for that blessing, just like you're accountable for any blessing. If you were born wealthy, if you were born, uh, you know, to, to, frankly, if you were born in a family with two parents, a mother and a father, what an incredible blessing that is that many people do not enjoy. If you were born with physical or mental uh, capabilities, if you were born tall, if you were born attractive, if you were born, if you're the firstborn in a family, these are all things that have been shown to actual, actually give benefit to a person. And, uh, you know, uh, th- these are things to remember because this is none of your doing. Y- you have nothing to be proud or ashamed of in the circumstances of your birth. That is the Lord's sovereign decree. In fact, I can't think of anything more sovereign uh, than the Lord determining the circumstances of your birth. So with all that said, uh, you know, you can be thankful for your own citizenship. You can understand the reality that citizenship exists you can look through even uh, the scriptures and you see that there is this notion that there are benefits associated with, with citizenship and that, uh, you know, you, you see the concept of nations building walls in scripture. So that is indeed a possible concept and a nation might choose to do that in their own exercise of sovereignty. So I don't think that there is anything immoral about building a wall any more, any more than that it's immoral to lock the doors of your house, as an example. But with that said, I also think that it's very important to really have a heart of care and love for those that are among us. And I think that, you know, the reality is there are people who are so desperate and driven by their desperate circumstances that they're going to make an incredibly difficult, incredibly expensive, incredibly dangerous journey across, you know, over a thousand miles in many cases uh, to flee their own country to try to come here. And I think that, you know, to the extent that we can uh, pray for those people, minister to those people, especially, look, we're in Southern California. We might, you know, we're not in San Diego, so we might not have as many direct opportunities to be at the border, so to speak. But there are a number of people that we can maybe even think of in our own circumstances who, uh, you know, are recent uh, refugees or have, are seeking asylum. And I think, again, these are people that the Lord has placed in our path, and we need to care for them and we need to love them. 
In your own Christian liberty, you might choose to get involved with a solid gospel border organization. I've actually inquired, and I'm working on um, a dear uh, dear brother here, a TMS brother, Eki Tepusapornchai, recently took a church uh, kind of east of San Diego a bit near the border, and you know, I would love to be able to link up with him on some kind of gospel mercy ministry. And so that's something that uh, you know, I've been actively looking to pursue, uh, and maybe there's other opportunities as well you could do. But again, I think you have to be careful as well in terms of when you look at this issue. There's going to be a lot of shaming. There's going to be a lot of you know, misuses and misinterpretations of the Bible. There's going to be a lot of, um, frankly, um, you know, there's a lot of secular or uh, liberal Christian groups, I think, that uh, uh, might be striving to work on this issue on a temporal, practical, worldly level, but not on the right spiritual level with the right gospel. So you have to be careful about engaging that issue. Um, So those are just some thoughts on the nature of citizenship, immigration, and the like, and hopefully that's helpful. And if anyone has a follow-up to what I've just said, feel free to text Aaron again. Sorry, Aaron. I think this is now the most asked question. Uh, how do you lovingly come alongside a Christian who is caught up in identity politics? Yeah, that's so hard. And I've talked to so many people who have that. Um, you know, one thing I would say would be to equip yourself. Um, there, there's another person I want to recommend. Uh, his name is Dr. Neil Shenvi, S-H-E-N-V-I. Uh, this is a fellow who's out in the East Coast in North Carolina. He has a website, Shenvi Apologetics. Dot com, S-H-E-N-V-I, apologetics.com. Uh, and he's really just a brilliant uh, person, and he has wholeheartedly devoted himself to the um, exposing concerns with respect to, um, not it, sorry, critical theory is this man's uh, focus. And basically, he's spent a lot of time very persuasively and very convincingly showing how aspects of what's called critical theory Uh, Some people call it other names, such as cultural Marxism, although that's a rather loaded term. Uh, There's other, you know, kind of notions of how these secular theories have really been seeping into both the culture and even into the church. And so you should check out his website. He's also very active on Twitter. He's one of the most gracious men that I know that's engaged in this discussion. So I think that will benefit you in that regard. So you can equip yourself to see how some of these notions of critical theory have really seeped in. And it's really unbiblical notions because critical theory and Christianity, I think, are incompatible, essentially. And so you should check that out. You should arm yourself and understand because a lot of times when I talk to my friends about this, they're like, where is my friend getting this stuff? And and I think that it is this kind of subtle, perhaps not even understood uh, imbibing of critical theory. And, you know, that's the notion of dividing the entire world into oppressor and oppressed classes. It's the notion that, oh, you can only speak on a topic if you've been oppressed. Well, no, the answer is any person who can divide the word of God accurately has something of value to say. We know that because we stand on the word of God and we're not kind of subject to these subjective mystical whims. And and of course, you know, a person who has suffered certain things can indeed provide a a valuable perspective at times. I'm not saying that they can't, but they're not the only ones who can provide a perspective. And the most important perspective is one that is rooted in the word of God. So I would say arm and equip yourself. I mean, you don't, I wouldn't say you don't have to be like an expert PhD level person, but at least have some idea of what you're talking about. I would say arm yourself with the scriptures that I just talked about on the nature of identity, our identity in Christ. And I really, 
I have yet to find anyone who has been willing to engage with me at length, and I try to be very gracious when I do engage, you know, on these scriptures. And it's just so clear to me, and I just don't see how there's any argument. And what I've noticed in many of these discussions is the person kind of throws their social justice-related bomb out there, and then they kind of like go away. You know, they don't really want to engage and say, no, 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 come on, let, let, come, let us reason together, right? And, and I think that really focusing on the scriptures, talking about where our identity should be, I think would be uh, a helpful place to start. Because at the end of the day, it's not your brilliant argumentation that's going to convince your friend that maybe they're heading down a potentially dangerous path. It's going to be the word of God. And so that's why, again, you need to have the scriptures uh, at hand. And uh, that, those are the only things that can help your friend. And I would also say, do it graciously. And a third thing I could say is, look, you, we can affirm the scriptures clearly hate the sin of partiality. We know that from James chapter 2. We know that from the Proverbs. We know that it is a sin to engage in sinful partiality. Look, racism is a horrific sin. You know, one thing in my uh, Skin Deep message, I talked about the notion of interracial marriage or interethnic marriage. And you know what? If, you're, if you are a single person and you're looking at a potential spouse, what matters is whether they are in Christ. Their ethnicity should not matter to you. And, and, and if you're a parent and you have a child and they're, you know, considering dating and, and you know, what matters to you should not be their ethnicity. It should be whether they're solid in Christ, whether they are rooted in Christ. That is what matters here. And to the extent that there is this kind of hesitation, this keeping at arm's length, this uh, kind of even uh, distaste for or opposition to inter-ethnic marriage, you need to check your heart because there is the sin of partiality lurking there almost certainly. And so, again, you can, you, can tell your, you can talk to your friend and you can affirm the things that the Bible affirms, that, look, racism is sin. Hatred on that level is sin. Discrimination in this regard is sin. But that doesn't mean the rest of the Bible is thrown out because we're so, uh, you know, willing to engage this cause. You know, that's something that I would really add is that um, one of the problems with this uh, <laughs> You know, uh, this, this movement, I actually, I'm gonna, I took a note earlier because I was thinking I might bring this out. My deepest concerns with this identity politics, social justice issue in the church, there, there are a number of different concerns I have. I have a soteriological concern, which is a salvific concern. You know, there are people who are trying to claim that, oh, uh, the gospel, uh, if you don't really, if you're not fighting vocally for social justice, then you're holding to a truncated gospel. Well, that is, that is a fundamental error that they're trying to propagate, which I firmly and completely oppose. The gospel is the gospel. Faith in Christ alone, knowing, you know, that, that belief in Christ as Savior and Lord, that is the gospel. And if you add any kind of works, such as doing justice or doing anything to it, then you're corrupting the gospel and you're doing what they did in Galatians. And so that's a huge, that's the biggest concern I have with this kind of social justice movement in the church. There's another concern of ecclesiology that basically a lot of people are confusing what they think the mission of the church should be versus perhaps our individual mission as Christians. Individual Christians can pursue various callings. If you want to fight for so-called social justice in your individual Christian stewardship, feel free. You can do that and you can maybe even do it in a wise way if you're very careful and, and circumspect. But to put that on the church 
is an error in ecclesiology. It's not the duty of the church to go fight social justice and, and open hospitals and, and create soup kitchens. The duty of the church is to equip people and train them up and to go bring the gospel to the uttermost ends of the earth. That is the duty of the church. So there's an ecclesiological error. There's an eschatological error. A lot of times you might see some post-millennial or so-called optimistic amillennials who are saying, yeah, it is, it is our mission as the people of God and as the church to go and fix society. Again, we as premillennialists would, would disagree. That, I mean, certainly we can be salt and light. We can help wherever we can. But we're never going to fix society. The only person that's going to fix society is Jesus Christ when he returns. So there's an eschatological issue. There's also a misunderstanding on a harmatheological level or the understanding of sin, I think, because I touched on it in the, in the message. There's this danger of legalism versus Christian liberty. And a lot of times, a lot of these social justice warriors or, or social justice advocates, to put it in a less derogatory fashion, because I don't want to insult anyone. You know, these social justice advocates, these social justicians, as my friend Daryl Harrison uses the term, a lot of times they're going to say, well, you need to do this. You need to jump on board with me, with my cause. You need to be active fighting for social justice. Otherwise, you're not a good Christian. Or some of them might even say you're in sin. Well, that again, as I said in the message, that is legalism. That is denying to people the ability to, in their own Christian calling and stewardship, to pursue the causes that they deem to be the most important. Look, I think that there is such a misplaced priority on the part of many of these vocal social justicians. And again, we talked about abortion as I believe personally that's the biggest problem facing us because there are nearly one million murdered babies per year that we see in this country alone. That's a huge, massive problem, and anything else stacked against that pales in comparison. Look, there are a lot of people who are very passionate about uh, police shootings. They're like, oh, there are so many police shootings, and they, they're unjust and everything. Well, first of all, every police shooting is a case-by-case analysis. But second of all, if you look at the total sum of police shootings in this country, the number of unarmed people killed by police each year is around 100 people a year. Somewhere around there, maybe a little more, maybe a little less. So when you stack up that 100 people a year, and again, each one is a tragedy. That is the Imago Day that is being killed. And, and, you know, it might have been a justified shooting. It might not have been a justified shooting. But regardless, it is a tragedy. There are loved ones who are going to miss that person. But that's still 100 compared to 1 million. And so, again, as a matter of priorities, I think that it just seems to me that many people who are so vocal and saying, you have to jump on board with my social justice cause or else you're not being a good Christian, you know, they're really not seeing the bigger picture. It's almost like, oh, well, you know, I guess I will say this. Uh, there are some things that our president has said that I take exception to. I might disagree with some things that he has said, all right? But there is a difference between words and Actions, right? Uh, we, we know this from, um, I'm going to get the verse to come up. Uh, it's just so powerful when we think about this. I think it's Matthew 21. Let me double check. Um, but what do you think? It's Matthew 21, verses 28 and following. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he regretted it and went. The man came to the second and said the same thing. And he answered, I will, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. 
So, again, there's a difference between words and actions. And I think it's important to look at the actions of a person in considering all of these things, even if you may not like their words. So that's um, something that I would say. And maybe we'll do two more questions if we can get to them. Uh, Another one being, um, several people have asked this question, uh, where do you think the ethnic group-centric uh, ministries stand in the church? Like, Should we have different ministries that pertain to ethnic groups, like Korean church or something like that, uh, whether different churches or different ministries and outreaches in the yeah. church? Yeah, well, I think you will note one thing about those outreaches is that I believe in every case, uh, but potentially not, but I believe in every case it is language-based, number one. That is a huge, important distinction because you can't give the gospel to someone if you cannot communicate with them, right? So that's a huge distinction, and that's one reason I love the ministries that outreach to certain ethnicities and certain languages at this church. The other thing I want to add is it is not an ethnically restricted group. If you've got uh, you know, a person of a certain ethnicity, uh, let's say you've got uh, a white person who speaks Thai, go to the Thai outreach. That'd be great, you know, or if you've got a black person who speaks Russian, go to the Russian Bible study. You know, that this is not an exclusive group. It's if you can speak the language, come on, hang with us. You know, that, that's great. Come help us bring the ministry of the gospel to people who need it in their language. And so I would make that really big distinction. Now, that's not to say, I mean, I think there are certain situations where I know some really solid churches that might be predominantly Asian. I can think of one great church in San Diego, but it's the same thing there. They they welcome people of all races. It just so happens that the initial core group of people happen to be Asian, and that not due to discrimination, but just due to the the tendency that, you know, like tends to attract like, and that's a human tendency that they've established in a number of, of studies. It's not necessarily a deliberate discrimination of any kind. It's just like, hey, you know, we happen to know other Asian people. Those tend to be the people that are more commonly in our circles, so the people they invite to church and hang out tend to be more Asian. So I think it's important to make that distinction that if all are welcome, you know, the fact that there may be a group that may be predominantly one ethnicity, that doesn't necessarily make it a bad group. That's also, it's true of black churches as well, you know, or, or, or certain churches in the South might be more, uh, you know, of one ethnicity than the other. It's often, frankly, it's often a class-based issue depending on the nature of your neighborhood and the, the ethnic makeup of that neighborhood. So uh, I think that uh, rather than condemn any ethnic-based church, I think the the better question is, is that church genuinely open and welcoming and hospitable to people of all ethnicities? And if the answer to that is yes, then look, that, that might be perfectly fine. It would really depend on the circumstances. Let's do one more question. Uh, I'll give you an easy one. Um, we've had several people talk about this. I'm going to generalize kind of best I can. Um, how should a Christian respond to the president? Um, just <laughs> simple, throwing it out there. Uh, yeah. Well, I'm going to tell you plainly, and I have a firm conviction on this from Scripture, and this is true regardless of whether it's President Trump or formerly President Obama. Let's turn to Titus 3. If you look at Titus 3, I think it's very, very clear. Titus 3, verse 1 and following. Remind them to be subject to rulers to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. 
And we also know from 1 Peter 2 that even when Peter was writing to Christians suffering deep, horrible, murderous persecution under the Roman Emperor Nero, that they were nevertheless commanded to submit to the governing authorities. So I think this sets a stage for, uh, you know, we are, I even cited the scripture as well in the presentation in the message that we are commanded to honor the king. And so I think that there is a level of honor that uh, we owe our president. And I may not agree with everything the president says. That's okay. I don't think he cares <laughs> whether, he, whether I agree with him or not. But I do owe him uh, some level of honor. I am commanded not to malign you know, him. And, and I think that's an area where a lot of people really stumble into sin, potentially even, is when you see some professing Christians like vitriolically, harshly maligning the president. And some of you may have done this as well with President Obama. And I think you got to really search your heart and uh, remember whether you agree with the president or disagree with them, God has sovereignly ordained that person to be the leader of this country. And we need to be praying for that president. And frankly, pray for great fruit of repentance. And, and you know, he's made a profession of faith uh, you know, in my limited ability and, and from my 30,000-foot distance, I may have not seen certain fruit from that profession of faith. But look, I pray that there would be an earnest conviction, an earnest repentance, and an earnest salvation there. I pray for his wisdom. I pray for protection. I pray that he would lead our nation in a wise way. And really, when you're praying for someone like that, I think you know, it, it tends to help us in the honoring area on a heart level, even if we might really strongly disagree with certain aspects of that person. Thank you very much.